Hello there, everyone. This is Dan Fagella here with Tech Emergence, where we interview entrepreneurs, researchers, and investors in the domain of emerging technology, particularly where psychology and technology overlap. We've been speaking a, a good deal about the research side of brain-machine interface and how that ties into assistive technology. And today, I'm lucky enough to have on the line um, someone who's really on the, the ground using these technologies in an assistive context every day and has been doing so uh, nearly for decades now. I have with me Elisa, uh, Elisa Brownlee, who, who works with the ALS Association, um, specifically working with uh, patients uh, with augmentative communication and assistive technology. So, Lisa, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Indeed, I'm glad to have you here. And, and uh, you know, you had actually known someone who had been on the podcast before, which is Dan Batcher of the, the Speak Your Mind Foundation and some of the work that they've been doing, obviously, uh, lots of BCI work around assistive technology, locked-in syndrome, ALS being another very uh, large condition having to do with uh, locked-in and, and paralysis issues. Um, I wanted to, to talk through first with you because unlike a lot of other conditions like, let's say, a stroke, um, ALS is progressive. So a stroke uh, person may may experience a stroke and then, and then literally be stuck in a very unfortunate locked-in circumstance from then on out. Normally with ALS... Um, it's progressive, and, and each phase of that sort of weakening of the muscular system and, and lessening of those capacities um, requires a different set of assistive technology to sort of deal with that phase in that decline. So I, I wanted you to speak to sort of the, the, the types and tools, um, the, the types of technology and tools that you're using with people um, throughout that spectrum of the progression of ALS. intervention does depend on the client's physical status. Yeah, I can imagine. Everybody with ALS progresses differently, so um, there's, there's no one fixed injury, like you were saying about the stroke. So ALS is progressive, and a lot of the technology interventions that we do will last for a while, and then we have to move on to something else. Yep. So if it's computer access, for example, we talk about just uh, instead of using a regular mouse, transitioning into a trackball mouse and using the existing on-screen keyboard, which is present under Windows accessibility, instead of a tactile regular keyboard if the person is having shoulder or wrist issues. Yep. Then we move on to more advanced technology, um, head mount systems, eye gaze systems, and we are fortunate enough now to have tablet systems. The iPad, when the iOS 7 came out in September, has built-in switch accessibility. So prior to the iOS 7 coming out, somebody with a disability could only use the iPad if they could use their hands or use a, a, a stylus that's attached to their head or yeah. in, in a mouth. But now we have switch scanning on the iPad. So the individual doesn't ever have to touch the iPad to activate a app or a function. So it depends on which type of device the individual wants and their physical limitations when we are getting involved with them. But they can go from the very simple to the very complex. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. Depending on, not just on their physical, thing, the physical status, but I always ask the person with ALS, what is it that you want to do? Because technology is wonderful. Obviously, I'm a technologist myself, but it's not for everyone. So it's important to involve the person and understand um, their personality and understand 
coping mechanism dealing with the loss of communication, which is often the hardest part of ALS that someone goes through. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so um, with with that in, in mind, I know you'd, you'd reference there once once ALS progresses to a certain point, we're talking about head-mouse technology, eye trackers, which, which gets even more um, sort of severe, which we'll talk about in a bit. And now I'm curious to how the, the tablet sort of plays its role, but we can speak to the head-mouse first. Again, a technology maybe not everyone would opt for, and, and you made the very apt point that just because a technology can add some functionality, it doesn't mean it's going to be something that everybody would enjoy or, or would like to do. But with, with a head-mouse, in terms of when it's, when it's been used well and, and, and you've seen it play a good role, um, how does a head mouse work? Um, how does a head mouse function for, for those of the folks tuning in right now who aren't familiar with this degree of assistive tech? Sure. A head mouse basically takes the place of a, a mouse that the individual uses with their hand. So you need to use the on-screen keyboard. Again, that's a keyboard that you just view on the screen. And you use a head mouse. Uh, there are two major companies, Medentech and Origin Instruments, that sell these two products, and it's a small receiver that's placed on the top of your laptop or your desktop, and the individual wears a reflector dot between their eyebrows. And that reflector dot is interacting with the receiver on the top of the computer, and as the individual moves their head around, that reflector dot is moving the mouse, and then you dwell on a letter. For, and you can set the time from one second to, you know, five seconds to ten seconds. And as you dwell on that letter, it types the letter for you. There is also a product called Camera Mouse that's out of Boston. And that's a free head mouse that uh, the developers took your existing web camera and turned that into a head mouse. So you can download that for free and try... as an individual just to see what a head mouse system would look like and whether or not you'd want to move your head around the screen all day to make um, activations. Yeah, wow. So some of those motions must be rather subtle, and I can imagine, again, with ALS and the progressive weakening of, of the musculature, um, that to some degree that there may be only so so many letters these folks may, may be eager to type. Whereas verbally, the average adult speaks 150 to 200 words a minute. 
Yeah, that's that's out of this world. Yeah. So it, it's a huge undertaking for people to use assistive technology. And I, I tell people, especially family members, you know, it, you have to just wait. You have to use etiquette. You know, if you weren't going to finish their sentence before, when they were still speaking, don't do it now. And, and um, But educating people... Um, the, the person that's using it about how much effort goes into it and then educating the family not just about the effort but that you know things are not going to be the same they're not going to be um so uh, with with respect to um the the eye tracker as well because i know that when when um als progresses to a certain degree and certainly the folks at the speak your mind foundation are working a lot with assistive tech and uh, BCI, um, you know, there's there's a lot to be there's a lot to be said about eye tracking, kind of the future of eye tracking, and a lot of interesting devices. Um, h- how do you see eye tracking used well? And maybe also, again, give a, a little bit of a brief intro to eye tracking and, and, and how it how it works as well for the folks. Sure. Um, eye tracking is a system where a camera is placed on the bottom of your laptop or on the bottom of a desktop. And the camera can either be encapsulated or just um, independently hanging from the, the, um, the flat screen. And that camera is a CCTV camera, thing that you would see in a security um, system. And that camera is calibrated to your retina. So you sit in front of the, the device and on the screen you follow a bunch of dots until you calibrate the system where it can read your eyes. Then using that same on-screen keyboard, you are just moving your eyes to the letter A and you're dwelling on the letter A and it will type it for you. Some of the drawbacks of using eye gaze is that um, you can't use it in natural light. So you can't use it outside. Mm, yeah, of course. So, you, know, you want to go sit on the deck, you can't do that. Um, you can't use it under a skylight. So you have to use it in, in somewhat of, I don't want to say a dim, but you can't use it in direct sunlight. Um, it's also not applicable to everyone. Sometimes people have underlying eye issues that you don't know. Um, sometimes the individual's pupil is is very dark, and, and the camera can't differentiate the pupil from the iris, so it can't figure out, they can't even read your pupil. Sometimes medications, especially folks with ALS are on a medication called Baclofen. That makes their um, pupils get so large. Again, the camera can't read it unless you can um, dilate. You can, you can get those pupils smaller. Um, people who wear trifocals. I mean, so eye gaze systems are the latest and the greatest, and they're often the most expensive, so people think they're the best. What they fail to understand is that the technology um, can't recognize certain things. You know, if you have a torn retina, you know, you might be out of luck. So it's not for everyone. And so if you do even have an eye gaze system, of course we want you to have a backup system in place, whether or not that's a letterboard or something else, something low-tech, because even high-tech things can fail, the power can go out, you might have an emergency. So um, just because you have the most expensive piece of technology, you can't rely on it to be your only form of communication. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine that that, uh, again, would be the case. And, and the limitations within daylight, obviously, being uh, just one of one of many other burdens of the condition. 
Um, and I know right. that for for you, uh, being on the ground, I mean, that there's there's a lot of value in what's going on in innovation in this space. Lucky uh, for me, I'm, I'm up and around the Boston area. I get to see a lot of this stuff and be around a lot of the folks that are kind of innovating in this domain. Um, but, of course, uh, applying it is an entirely different matter. I know for you, we were talking off mic um, about what might the trends be that could really change assistive technology, that could really uh, help people gain and keep function, whether it's ALS, whether it's uh, stroke patients, whatever else. Um, and, and I really wanted to get your take on how Google Glass could get there. You know, it, it hasn't, uh, you know, I'm even up here in Boston, you know, I'm on the subway and it's it's still a, a pretty darn rare thing to see somebody wearing Google Glass. But I think that, but I think the, the, the you know, wearable and augmented reality, I think it's going to be tough to turn down the benefits there at some point, just like everybody has their cell phone now. Um, but, you know, there are some folks that argue that the assistive or ameliorative impact of AR and VR um, may kind of make its bigger leaps and bounds even before it gets picked up um, by consumers. Speak, speak to us a little bit about how you see Google Glass making a difference for folks with ALS. I absolutely think it will be a game changer. There are research projects going on in several different areas to make glass accessible for people with disabilities. At the moment, you can only activate glass if you can get your finger up to the side of your head and swipe your finger forward and back. And then you also need to give glass verbal commands. There's, there's a research project going on at Penn State to make an app for communication so that you would actually see the alphabet in your Google Glass page. And you can um, activate the letter several ways. There's people who are working on activations that are um, on the body. Um, so instead of the swipe near your head, they're actually putting sensors on the stomach and you can swipe with your um, thumb or your forefinger. Uh, there's also research going on to turn Google Glass into an eye gaze system. And the researchers have done this for $25, so the $25 add-on um, besides the cost of the glass. So glass would not necessarily be uh, uh, prone to problems in natural light because it works outside already. And um, you wouldn't have difficulty in positioning. Now, my folks with ALS sometimes, as the disease progresses and we get to near the end stage, their neck gets very weak, they're in bed a lot, and it makes it very difficult to get any form of assistive technology to work for them just based on their positioning. So imagine someone laying in bed with their neck at a 90-degree angle and you're trying to get them on a computer. Glass would not um, have any issues with somebody in their position. Yeah. So the, the potential of having something that small take the place of something right now that requires a 17-inch screen in front of you that weighs almost 10 or more pounds that someone has to, you know, um, move away when you need to be transferred. For example, say you need to go to the bathroom. You would never have to take glass off. But if I had an assistive technology device in front of me with a 17-inch screen, I've got to somehow swing that away and get the person out of the wheelchair. So yeah. there are many benefits, and and, and not, not only do I see it um, as uh, being a benefit to the person, person with ALS, but their caregivers left set up. And it really is a quality of life issue. It's such an easy device to put on. 
and um, I'm sure the calibration would be so much easier than it is now. That's the number one thing I hear from our caregivers all the time is we can't get the thing to calibrate. And, and as I mentioned to you off mic, I mean, it has to be 23 inches away from you. Yeah, and, yeah, and, limitations. You know, if, if your positioning is anything other than that, it, it's difficult, and caregivers get real frustrated. Yeah, and so, again, there just seem to be uh, so many upsides to being able to keep this as more of more of an, an immersive ongoing experience than this this whole sort of lights camera action setup that requires a certain head position and a certain uh, you know degree of tilt and there's certain things that can set it off as opposed to if something is just on your head no matter if you're laying down you're sitting up um, in terms of the the kinds of functionality that um, you really want to see developed. You know, the, the folks that are tuning into Tech Emergence a lot of the time, this is people that are interested in entrepreneurship, research and innovation in this domain of, of emerging tech, BCI sort of being up there. Um, what for you are, are the, the, the types of tech, the, the functions that could be developed that would make a massive difference from an assistive tech uh, perspective? You mean in terms of Google Glass? Or yeah, Glass in general. Yeah, I know as we're making this transition. I would say Glass is the accessibility. Um, for anyone with a disability, regardless of ALS or not, you know, they, can they, due to their disability, get their hands up to the glass? That would be the first thing, is taking care of the swipe, the, the swipe forward, swipe back. Yep. And then taking, um, and then having an app for... I don't know, I'm not a researcher, but in a way to bypass the, the speaking um, commands that you must give glass. Because not only do, with, do people with ALS obviously have some speaking difficulties, you see that in a wide variety of disabilities. Yep. So if somebody has really slurred speech, which is called dysarthria, being able to talk to glass is dysarthric speech. It doesn't recognize it right now. You have to have a clear voice. So the ability to bypass that and the swipe, and I really do feel it would be revolutionary for our folks. And then, as I said, the communication apps are being worked on already for those who are nonverbal. Yeah, and uh, I happen to think that the transition of this tech moving away from uh, it re involving the, the physical the physical finger swipe or the actual voice commands actually may be a transition that happens even outside of the ameliorative or assistive technology world because I think, again, when you're on a subway or in whatever given conditions or circumstances, um, you know, that, that can just be a hindrance. And I know some of the potential answers to that problem are uh, with other BCI and brain machine interface types of technology. I know you had mentioned uh, something you had seen recently where um, just by thinking and by calibrating BCI signals and EEG um, off of the scalp, they were able to replicate that finger swipe in the same way? Correct, on Google Glass. Uh, the article came out earlier this week. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. So I, I, Again, I happen to think that there's going to be a lot of crossover between what's uh, fixing problems and what might be normal transitions anyway, but it sounds as though uh, obviously, particularly in uh, in the domain of, of amelioration or, or assistive technology, getting rid of the absolute requirement of getting your hand up to the level of your head or getting rid of the absolute requirement of, of speech, as you had mentioned before, are going to be some big jumps. Anything else that you'd be excited to see innovation-wise as glass makes its way in? Well, I forgot to mention that there is a research project going on 
a wheelchair through Google Glass, a power wheelchair. So huh. that should be very interesting too. Um, and, and for me and my folks, that would be great because ALS is a progressive disease. We have a lot of um, people who cannot drive their wheelchairs anymore because they've lost the function in their hands. And for some reason, they, you know, they don't like or can't use the header right. And so if, if this comes to fruition, you could be able to drive your wheelchair through glass. And this could open up a whole door for many people with disabilities because of the price point. Uh, anything with computer access that's not communication isn't covered under medical insurance. Yep. And as of September 1, we will probably even lose the benefit of Medicare paying for an eye gaze device. A traditional eye gaze device for communication, the one I described with the CCTV yep. camera, is $15,000 and change. Google Glass is $1,500. And any adaptation, even if it's $1,000, still is a lot cheaper. And if somebody could drive their wheelchair through Glass, then they could save themselves buying what's called a header rate system where you drive the wheelchair through a header rate, which is $4,000. So it could make a huge uh, financial burden much easier for people with disabilities to afford technology because right now it's unaffordable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and there's, been, there's been a lot of talk about that, about how in robotics and so many other domains – um, the big consumer tech, the stuff that gargantuan companies can put gargantuan dollars behind, that stuff's going to pick up ever so swiftly um, simply because uh, that's, you know, that's where the money's being put into. The processors, the batteries, the, the functionality, the efficiency, um, the, even the design and whatever else. And that a lot of that, even if it's not built in, you know, can be hacked, can be uh, whittled apart, can be used in ways – uh, to bring down the cost of these massively expensive and sometimes massively uh, overly complex or clunky uh, ameliorative technology. So uh, fantastic. That's very true. Yeah, it's, it's big, big, big trends. Everybody, all the researchers I speak to in robotics just talk about how much, uh, how much um, cell phone tech has sort of driven down a lot of the costs and, and the, the uh, barriers to entry in terms of experimentation robotics. So hopefully we will see the same in helping folks with stroke and locked in as well. I know we're a little bit over time here, Elisa. I wanted to make sure first and foremost to say thanks a ton for being able to share your insights. Again, I, I think it's important to not only get an understanding of who and how is developing this technology, but also who needs it and, and what are the applications that might be coming down the pike. So it's great to hear your perspective. If people want to learn more about the work at the ALS Foundation or mm -hmm. if you have any particular resources about uh, BMI that you like to follow or stay tuned into, um, go ahead and share them. Um, uh, our website is alsa.org, alsa.org. And I also have a blog where I blog a lot about BCI and uh, current trends in technology. And it's ALS Assistive Technology, all one word, at, uh, I'm sorry, ALS Assistive Technology.blogspot.com. Got it. All right. Very good. Uh, Elisa, thank you so much for taking the time here You're at welcome. Tech Emergence. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker 
uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential. And make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, If you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, and be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious f- uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Uh, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>